Hello, welcome to How to Be a VIP, a show about living as or with a visually impaired person. Presented by me, your host, Taylor Knockcut. This series aims to help you, our lovely listeners, see the world through our eyes. So let's talk. Hello and welcome to episode one of How to Be a VIP. I'm so, so excited that this is finally here. This project's been in the pipeline for a little while. It originally started as an Instagram series called VIP, which stands for Visually Impaired Person, where I just shared some tips and tricks of what it's like living with a vision impairment um, every day. But I desperately wanted to take it to an audible platform of some description so a podcast or a talk show because for me that's where I get most of my entertainment as a non-visual person I love podcasts I love radio audiobooks so it seemed really fitting that I launch this show for you guys the listeners and here we are episode one let's get started this episode is called who I am And I thought as the host, it's important that you get to know a little bit about me before we dive into bringing some guests onto the show. We will have guests from different backgrounds, some sighted and obviously visually impaired guests as well. And the show is going to contain different interview styles. So we're going to have me taking some sighted people out, but putting them in blindfolds, putting them (laughs) into visual impaired situations, public transport, shops, restaurants, but then also interviewing some vision impaired people about their journey and about how they've found navigating the world um, and what their sight loss is and how technology and the world has adapted. So shedding some light on some positives um, and as well as negative experiences. So, a bit about me. So, I live in London, I'm a female in my late 20s, and I've had my eyesight condition since birth. My condition is called Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is a rods and cones dystrophy. It's a genetic condition, so both my parents carried half the gene each, and I was the complete gene. So, To explain a rods and cones dystrophy a little bit better, I have like an analogy. (laughs) So between your eyes and brain, you have rods and cones. And I describe them as a team of workers. So your eye will see something. It goes through the rods and cones. They take it to the brain. Then the brain says what it is. The rods and cones take it back to the eye. And then the eye sees it. So it's like having a bunch of people working, like liaising between the eye and the brain. But I was born with 90% of mine missing. So I only have a team of a team of 10 <laughs> rushing around between my eye and brain. Um, and my left eye uh, is worse than my right eye. And some of the rods and cones that I have missing permanently, for example, um, I have no depth perception. So this means everything looks flat. So a step could be a like centimeter or a 10 foot drop and I wouldn't know the difference so that's why I have a long cane and a guide dog for that precise reason I also get colors confused so seeing things like hot pink and orange or like lilac and gray or mint green and blue and then also um brightness is really important so At night, I'm considered night blind where I can't see anything at all unless like there's light coming from a street lamp and that's all I'll be able to see. 
And then in terms of font, being able to read writing, at school writing would have to be huge, like size 40 font. So now I rely on Braille or screen readers in order to uh, read and navigate um, text in the world. So on that note, we're going to go to our first interview. And this is with my nan. And this interview is about my diagnosis and what it was like for my family because I was my mum's first child and the family's first grandchild. So here is a little interview with my nanny Mary about how they found the experience. So Nan, when um, when did you think there was something wrong with my eyesight or when did you notice that I had a vision impairment? When we started looking after you, when your mother went back to work and we would have you on the the weekends that she went back to work. But we had noticed before that, that you always followed the light because mm. I was terrified of letting you fall when I was changing your nappy. So I used to put <laughs> everything on the table and put you up there and you'd look at the light. Mm. When you went out into the conservatory, you went to the brightest part and found that and mm. sat there. And that is what you always followed the light, but you had two of the most beautiful eyes. <laughs> Uh, and um, we didn't, we didn't know, you know, you, you managed very well. Uh, but then I came from, I only had one brother, but James came from a big family, your granddad. Mm. And he was much more clued up with children than I was. Yeah, so he'd know, because I was he, the first grandchild. That's right. So yeah. he, 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 did, he did know, you know, and he played with you a lot and danced with you and sang to you, you know. Mm. But he, we did notice just something. Mm. And then, uh, of course, you had to be very careful what you say. But when I took you for your eight months checkup, because your mother happened to be working that day, mm. we saw the doctor in the clinic and she asked us, she's a very nice doctor, uh, was there anything we were worried about? And we said, she follows the light a lot. Mm. And she turned off the lights in the clinic. Mm. And she said, and she, you know, she turned on a light somewhere else. I don't know what it was. She said, I always take note of what grandparents say. Yeah. And she referred you to King's College. Mm. So we took you to King's College. And you grabbed everything in sight. The <laughs> doctor's stethoscope, everything. For someone that can't see, I just grabbed all the stuff. Yes, <laughs> and I said, there was nothing wrong with your eyes. What, because, oh, because of that reason? Yeah, uh-huh. there was not. No, they, they weren't bothered about it but mm. see I, I get mixed up here now I don't know was it when you were up I don't know what age you were when when I was diagnosed when you got nystigmas your mum came up one morning because she lived down the road from us then she was crying because you had your eyes were going very quickly from side to side mm. like nystigmas yeah I said yeah so that's where like one yeah. of my eyes goes left to right and one goes up and down that's right yeah, yeah. so that's when then you were referred back to King's College so that would have probably been, because I was diagnosed at two, I reckon that would have been, mm. was it after I was diagnosed or before? No, to just before. That's yeah, so I must have been about, I probably was about one. Because one what we've been told, there was nothing wrong with you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so why would we want to hear there was anything wrong with you? Mm. So anyway, <laughs> then your mother saw Mr. Eglamendis. Yeah. Who started at the beginning. Mm. And he said, really, a child... You can't, it's very hard to diagnose a child because you can't really tell what's wrong with their eyesight till they can tell you what they can see. Yeah. 
It's so true. Yeah. And uh, you like Mr. Echelmandis, didn't you, very much? Yeah. yeah. And uh, he started off first, he asked first, were you clever? <laughs> oh, God. And I thought, you were, you were very really clever. And then, first he asked, then he said, well, first I'll start out as a brain scan to rule out anything. Your mother was terrified. Mm. Uh, there was anything wrong with you. She said, I'll never forget that. She cried her eyes out when you went into the scanner. Mm. So she, um, she always used to go on her own with you. We'd go up and meet her getting off the bus crying her eyes out. Anyway, we got... Uh, then there was nothing wrong with your brain. You said you had a beautiful good. brain. A beautiful brain. Yeah, that's well, that's a compliment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful brain. And then he sent you to great, to um, Moorfields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hospital. And they put an awful lot of electrodes on your head, and which which upset you very much. And it it wasn't successful. And he still wasn't happy with that, Mister Eckleman. <laughs> mm. He sent you to Moorfields. Oh no, not Moorfields. He sent you to the Children's Hospital. What's that? Um, Great Ormond Street. Great Ormond Street. And then they put a, 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 a video on for it. Had you watch it? You know, it was much more geared to children. I feel like that is one of my earliest memories. I genuinely feel like I can remember having that done. That's right. Very yeah. clearly. I remember looking at a screen That's right. and there being all these lights and numbers and things. And he still doubted his diagnosis. He, he, because he, he, but then he realised it said what you had. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I always forget. What is it? Leber's congenital amaurosis. That's right. Yeah. And he said there is nothing you can do about it. And he said technology would help you. Mm-hmm. And of course it has. Yeah. And um, then, of course, he straightened your eye, didn't you, when your eye went crooked? Yeah, when I was 11, I had an eye operation because the the left eye, which is the weaker one, went wonky. And when I went back, he was like, I am personally going to do this operation. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember literally sitting, waiting for having the operation. I was in the theatre and he went to me, what is the first thing you're going to eat when you wake up? And as I was saying, chocolate brownie. I then fell asleep and then yeah. woke up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but he, um, it, you know, uh, that was it. Then you just had to get on with it, mm. you know. Yeah. But then your mother always tried very hard and you had a lovely, do you remember the first man you had? His name was, what was it? Richard uh, Pratt. Richard Pratt, Richard yeah. Richard Pratt was wonderful. Yeah. He was. He believed in you all the way. From nursery and then yeah. school and, and, and all my mother, teaching yeah, assistants. Yes, and your mother was determined that you went to a normal school. Yeah, mainstream because school. Because you had to live in the normal world. And we're very lucky mm. with, uh, what was her name, Mrs. The, what, the headmistress of St. Stephen's? Was um, um, Mrs. Masterson. Mrs. Masterson yeah. said if we haven't had a very, we've never had a partially impaired child, she said, and we won't know if we don't try. Exactly. And then they got they had quite a few, didn't they? Yeah. Like that's and that's where you met um Heather Perfect. Heather Perfect. Yeah, that's another right. vision impaired yeah. person. Yeah. yeah. And uh she was great as well. Yeah. yeah. And and that did help you. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, huge thanks to my lovely nan for that interview. My nan is so professional. She's been on a couple of podcasts before. <laughs> um, right, moving on from that. Like my nan said there, um, I was very, very fortunate. I had incredible um, medical staff around me, incredible family members. And then when I went to school, teachers, everyone really made a point of 
championing me and like coming up with their own techniques and methods to help me because my condition was so rare and because I decided my family decided to send me to a mainstream school everyone had to really adapt to be able to educate me in the best way possible um for me and for my needs so we're now going to go on to an interview of my mum where she talks about how she had to cater and uh, tailor pardon the pun <laughs> um how she taught me as a child over to you mum so once I was diagnosed what were the things that you noticed you had to change or come up with like other solutions the diagnosis didn't because the diagnosis was just telling us kind of like what we we'd figured out anyway um to be fair I always it was lighting more than anything I always tried to have us in the brightest spot in the lightest room I I probably changed colour schemes I've I, I didn't have things up at windows if I didn't have to, so there was enough daylight. Um, I was more conscious when I was out of guiding you round things and, and looking out for things that I never looked out for before. Oh, like spotting obstacles? Yeah, but to be... I, I never... Because I remember Grandad, Grandad Seamus wanting to put bubble wrap on the corner of everything <laughs> once you'd hit your head once. <laughs> And then he wanted to get you a crash helmet. And like, <laughs> and I was like, we can't, Dad, because she's never going to learn. Mm. So not being cruel, but I thought once you yeah. bumped into something a couple of times, you'd remember where it was, yeah. which you do. You know where every bit of furniture is mm. within a centimetre. And if we moved it, you'd bump into it, you know, like. Yeah. So I kind of went from adapting to not adapting because my logic was if we were going out and about to people's houses and different places, that it wouldn't be adapted for you. Yeah. So I went from adapting some things to actually not adapting anything so that you learnt to adapt. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. And, like, with, like, teaching me how to do things as well, though, I remember, like, as a child with the reading and writing. Cause that, oh, yeah. All I of that stuff. Yeah, I still think you're little sister Bobby learned a load of stuff at an early age because she would be sitting on my lap while I went through things with you. So you had trouble just doing a letter. Like if you wanted to do tea for Taylor, the top of it would be in one place and the line down would be in another. Mm. So we did it in sand pits, big teas in sand pits, mm. or we got buttons or Lego brick. Everything was kind of, it, it had texture. It wasn't flat. Yeah, tactile. Tactile. Yeah. Yeah. So all of it was that. And then also when you, when you was only about eight, I managed to get you on a touch typing course, even though your hands were really tiny, because I figured out that writing was going to be such a problem for Mm. you. And then on the back of the touch typing, we married it with the piano and look where that led to your music career. Not intentionally. Yeah, Yeah, no, but it's so true. Everything was about touch. Everything Mm. had to do with feel or sound and we had loads of in the car in the house like audio teaching things like rhymes and songs that had to do with alphabets and maths and all them kind of things everything Mm. was very audio and tactile yeah yeah amazing and yeah like you said that leads us on really nicely to how I got into music Huge thanks to my mum and we smoothly transition into my music career. So music is a huge, huge part of my life. Um, As my mum said, from learning piano at age seven, 
Then I went to secondary school and I joined the choir and started a band with some of my friends. I did GCSE and then A-level music. And then in 2013, I started at Trinity Lab and Conservatoire of Music and Dance on the jazz performance course. And I studied there for four years, graduating in 2017 with a Beamers with Honours in jazz performance, getting a 2-1, which I was very happy about. <laughs> and I had a great time at Trinity. They were also another establishment that were ridiculously ridiculously accommodating um really really helpful with my visual impairment so I was very grateful uh, to the team at Trinity and to my tutors there and then when I graduated in 2017 I started um a band uh, with people from college uh, called Pixie and the Gypsies which is still going today so we released original music uh our first album Honey Trap in 2018 and our second album, Caught in the Rain, in 2020. And we're still gigging to this day. We play at venues such as Ronnie Scott's, the Cork Jazz Festival, London Jazz Festival, Cheltenham Jazz Festival, um, the Pizza Jazz Club in Soho. And we're very fortunate to have a very lovely fan base. And I'm very fortunate to have great band members who, again, are ridiculously accommodating and supportive um, with my visual impairment. My day job, as well as gigging and performing, is a vocal coach. So I teach singing and uh, vocal technique and composing in a few establishments, including London College of Performing Arts. I've also coached students for West End shows, auditions for things like The Voice Kids and Britain's Got Talent. And also I have taught workshops at the RNIB, so teaching um, up and coming blind and visually impaired musicians. I got to the point with my career in music where I felt that I was having to turn down work because of my visual impairment, which I never had before. And it basically meant that I was only working during the day and not in the evening because that's when my eyesight is is at its worst. So I was scared to get public transport by myself with my cane because it was dark coming home and I didn't want to rely on people. So I was actually not accepting jobs. And I didn't really know what to do because I've always used my cane. You know, I'd felt safe with my cane, but at night I just didn't. I felt very vulnerable and... I needed to think of a solution because obviously I wanted to further my career. And this is where guide dogs come into play. So at the end of 2019, I applied for a guide dog and it's quite a long process. And there'll be more about this in future episodes. We're going to have um, members of staff from guide dogs coming on, which is very exciting. Um, so I applied for the guide dog in 2019. You have like an online application, then a phone interview. And then the beginning of 2020, I had my face-to-face -face interview. And then I was supposed to have, they call it like a physical uh, test, um, which is where you do like a test drive. I call it like the guide dog driving test. Again, more on that in a future episode. But that was scheduled for March 2020. We all know what happened in March 2020. So that got postponed um, until June of 2021. I then took the exam in June 21 and they told me because of the pandemic that I would probably be waiting uh, between one to two years 
for a guide dog. And literally one month shy of, of the two year window, I got a phone call this year, uh, May 2023, saying they'd matched me with a beautiful Goldador, so Golden uh, Retriever Labrador Cross, uh, called Jilly, who, if any of you follow me on Instagram, you can see is a beautiful, fluffy, with a fluffy dog with a very, very big tail. <laughs> uh, she's absolutely gorgeous and I'm so grateful, so grateful to have her. I can't express just how much she's just opened up my world and I just don't feel scared anymore now that I have Jilly by my side. She's absolute treasure. Um, so yeah, like I said, more on Jilly later on um, in future episodes. So to wrap up each episode, I have three more sections. The next section is called VIP treatment. Now this is about um, a negative experience that uh, a vision impaired person has had, um, either from a member of the public or an organisation and what they wished had happened um, instead or uh, how people could be more um, tactful. So my experience that I'm going to mention this week is how many fingers am I holding up? I kid you not, the amount of times I've been asked this question, <laughs> um, it's so common, um, unfortunately more common than it should be. Um, but basically it's extremely frustrating if somebody puts their hand in front of your face and says, how many fingers am I holding up? Or waves their hand and go, can you see this? Um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's invading your personal space. Like if someone's getting right up in your face, it doesn't feel particularly nice. And secondly, when you're being diagnosed with an eye condition, you have so many, so many eye tests. And for some people, it can be a very overwhelming experience. And it can take them back to somewhere that maybe they don't want to go. Or if you're having eye health checks all the time, you don't want a random stranger conducting their own uh, eye test on you. <laughs> so I understand um, the curiosity that some people may have, but there is a way to do it. So if ever you're with a vision impaired person and you want to know what they can and can't see, for your own curiosity or also to help them because if I'm around someone who's never met me before they're obviously going to want to know because they want to help me and they want to be uh the you know assisting the best that they can so I always say you should just be really open and really honest and just say if you don't mind me asking um could you explain your eye condition to me so I can um assist you correctly or if you don't mind me asking, um, how much vision do you have or don't you have? Um, I just would like to know so I'm of help to you. Something like that is just like a really um, open and transparent way of just asking very politely. Now, the next little round um, at the end of the show is VIP life lessons. So this is where I ask a sighted person, um, family member, friend, or anyone else, um, about what they've learnt from being in the company of a vision impaired person. So this week we have my lovely auntie Erica, who's going to talk about something that she's learnt from me that she actually has taken uh, into her everyday life, uh, not just with um, other VIPs. Over to you, Erica. 
So I just wanted to ask you how in life um, you've adapted being around a vision impaired person. Okay, good morning, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's been a, no, it's been a, a real pleasure, you know, knowing you all this time. Um, I think there's sort of, yeah, lots of things. One thing, when we've sort of talked about this before, I think one really main thing um, that I think stands out is the way that we sort of message and communicate and stuff on the phone. Um, and I think that's really, it's just been a really positive adaption, I think, Um because when you know when we've got in the world has changed so much, hasn't it? From when you was younger, everything's phones now and texts and all of that. You know, and as technology changes, um, just knowing that WhatsApp has been a great thing. I mean, you have really encouraged it and pushed it because you send all your voice notes, your voice recordings. Yes, yeah, I bombard Erica <laughs> with my voice notes all the time, like morning. Yeah, which is lovely. <laughs> it really took getting used to, you know, to begin with. Um, you know, like, you've got all these... When WhatsApp started to pick up, you've got all these sort of written ones, and then all of a sudden, mm. oh, it's a voice one. Yeah. <laughs> and you sort of showed me, you know, how you did the voice recording. I'd, I'd never voice recorded until you did that the first time. Um, and then what I just found, what I find is so good about it is that it feels personal. It feels like, you know, much more personal than doing digits. I mean, I'm very slow anyway, but it's so much more personal, and it's so nice to hear your voice say, morning, yeah. up to this today, what it's like a mini to, phone call, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. And it's really good where you can potter in. I mean, you're always making a coffee or something. <laughs> the noise, the coffee machine in the morning, like first thing. But it feels really nice. It feels like, yeah, that you're actually having a chat, but you're able to do it whilst you're getting ready for work or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think I've found that really good. But it's really funny because when I message other people, well, that's always my preference is voice recording. Yeah, which has been lovely. So I've got some people that do, they do then text back. Um, but I've got loads more people and now send voice recordings. And I think it's just nice. Like, yeah, the amount of people say, oh, it's so nice to, like, hear your voice in the middle of a day. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's been really good. I mean, Taylor, you're an absolute whiz on the phone. <laughs> I will never get my head around how you can hear your messages sped up. Yeah, so when you're using voiceover as a vision paired person, you the phone will talk to you, so there'll definitely be an episode on technology. But yeah, when my phone literally yabbits away like a little robot and people like Erica are going, What on earth how on earth is she hearing anything? So that's why for me sometimes a voice note is better because if it's a long text message I have to sort of go through it piece by piece. Whereas if it's a voice note, it's, you know, it's a normal speed, a normal human voice, so it's kind of easier to get the emotion. Whereas a digital voice, a robot voice, isn't, you don't get the emotion from it, so a text can sound a bit cold. So that's why I prefer voice notes, even though other people can read a text and interpret their own emotion. Yeah, I do think that's the difference for me, 100%. And I think that's really good, isn't it? I think that's, you know, really, yeah, exactly what you said, is that you know the tone behind someone. Because that happens a lot, I think, yeah. with text messages. Sometimes yes. people misconstrue something, whereas if you yes. heard them say it, it's like, oh, OK, that, yeah. Yeah, that's totally fair. It's all that non, is it non, um, non-verbal communication. Yes. So, yeah, picking up on all those cues and body cues, but you can hear it in, yeah, in the voice So I've really loved that. Oh. And thank you for showing me that tone. No problem. <laughs> I'm glad that people yeah. are hearing your beautiful yeah. voice every day and voice notes as well. Our huge thanks to Erica for her VIP life 
lesson. Um, I absolutely love voice notes. I'm so pleased that she does too. (laughs) Amazing. So we've come to the last part of the show that has gone incredibly quickly. Thank you for listening. So the last bit is Taylor's top tips. I had to really articulate that when I said it. Taylor's top tips. <laughs> so this is where I offer you guys, the lovely listener, um, a piece of advice um, to send you on your merry way. And this week it's about eye health. Now this is crucial, so important, especially if you are a listener who doesn't have a visual impairment. When you're children, we always, you know, children would always go to the opticians, get their eyes checked and make sure, you know, they had 20-20 vision or that they got the right prescription. But when you get to being an adult, people just forget that's quite important. But it is, it's so significant. You must go to an optician once a year and get your eyes checked because a lot of vision impairment is actually preventable or it can even be made stable just to stop it from deteriorating. And for example, me, my eye condition is a genetic condition and it's technically not my eye that's the problem. However, if I then developed an eye health problem, I would really notice the smallest deterioration in my sight. So I still go every year and get my actual eyes checked just to make sure that they're functioning best they can so that the vision I have left doesn't deteriorate. And also you need to go to get the right prescription. Do not be going to shops and just picking up any glasses. You want the right prescription for you that can just make your eyes function the best they can. And we've come to the end of the episode. Oh my goodness. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. Huge thank you to all of my guests for this week. My lovely Nanny Mary, my fabulous mum, Joe Knotscut, and my beautiful auntie Erica. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss a future episode, give me a follow, Taylor Notcut on Instagram. If you're listening to this as a podcast, make sure to like, review and subscribe as it helps other people find the show. Much love and see you next time.